0: mm <laughs> So, uh, welcome to another episode of the TechMeme Ride Home Experience for today is July Fourteenth, twenty twenty one. We've got a lot of news to talk about, a lot of really exciting and interesting things. I'm highly caffeinated, but today um, we actually have a special guest. We've got Lucas here from Bloomberg, and um, you know, Lucas, if you want to like give us a bit of a sense for your beat for the things you cover, um, I was looking back on kind of like your story archive, and you've got a bunch of great stuff that Brian and I talk about a lot. But um, would love to hear it straight from you.
1: Yeah, um, thanks for having me on. Um, I cover the business of entertainment, or I like to think of it as the future of entertainment uh, for Bloomberg. Um, That includes uh, movies and TV, so I write a lot about Netflix, I write a lot about YouTube, uh, I write about influencers, I write about audio, so Spotify, Apple Music, and the like. uh, And I write a weekly newsletter um, for Bloomberg called Screen Time that is all about all of these subjects, I think the the sub headline on it or something is where Hollywood and Silicon Valley collide, which is has been what I've yep. written yep. about for the last several years.
0: Very nice. Um, well, we wanted to bring you on because there's been a lot of awesome awesome stuff happening in the whole entertainment space. You know, I mean, just. Today, things are happening. But of course, the big story that we want to talk to you about, or at least get your perception on, um, is what Disney is um, telegraphing with the news about Black Widow, the launch, the hybrid launch, what's happening there. You know, what does this mean? What is your what is your take on on that?
2: Well, it's
1: it's a really difficult subject to have. uh, uh a clear take on Mm. only because I think making grand conclusions about the movie business right now, it can be very challenging. We have, uh, you know, theaters open in most places, but not all places in some cases at limited capacity. Uh, you know, the, the most obvious takeaway is that Marvel is still incredibly popular and you drop a new Marvel movie and it shatters every record that we've seen in the pandemic. Um, the other interesting thing is that that Disney chose to disclose how the movie did uh, on the the premiere access, which is where you pay extra through Disney Plus. You pay thirty bucks and, and you can watch the movie. Um, you know, some people hailed this as a big win for transparency. I don't really buy that. Most of these media companies are pretty selective about what they reveal about online consumption, like a lot of the tech companies and. Uh, And so they tend to only release data when it it serves a purpose for them, either because it makes the numbers look really big or it covers over the fact that as far as Marvel movies go, this actually didn't do that well, which is sort of hard to believe when you think about, you know, 157 million at the box office. Um, And so I've heard a lot of different theories as to why they released it. I'm most curious whether they will choose to to release data like that again with all of their movies because they haven't in the past. um, and, And I don't know that they will in the future.
0: Yeah. I well, mean, so, I think, oh, go ahead, Ryan.
2: Well, this is what I'm most interested in really is, you know, I, I said on the show on Monday that, um, you know, that there's a reason why they decided to, to make this public because they thought the numbers were good enough. Um, and, and what's different about this, because obviously, you know, we, we've been a year into this where they're streaming and some of the movies go on streaming day and date and things like that. But this is the first time, that we've seen a release where it's, you pay $30 uh, or you go to the theater, right? So aside from whether Disney thought these numbers were good enough, what's your sense of Hollywood? Like was this impressive numbers to everybody else in with the caveats that again, maybe this is a second tier Marvel universe movie. The, 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 the pandemic is still ongoing. So maybe box office is still only at 40% or something. But fr- from your perspective, from what you're hearing in Hollywood, did were people sitting up to take notice that like oh maybe this will work? Yeah, I think it's you, you. You hear a
1: lot of different opinions. There are definitely those who take this as a sign that it will work, and that Disney released this because they plan to do it again. Because because one title that they did it previously with was Mulan last yep, year, yep. but that was when theaters were pretty much closed. You weren't having a lot of people go. This was unusual, as you point out, in theaters being open in in most big cities, um, but also a lot of people chose to watch it at home. And I I think there's a desire in Hollywood for some kind of hybrid approach to work. And if Disney can make it work, then maybe Universal and Warner Brothers and and others will as well. The, The challenging part is this is a new economic model. And so if you think about the $60 million that that were made from the, the premier premier access. How much of that is people who wanted to go to the theater and instead chose to stay at home because they could, how much of that is someone who might have rented it down the line? You know, the, the traditional Hollywood movie, they, ha- it has what's called a waterfall in the industry where you make a ton of money and hopefully In theaters at first, and how much you make in theaters tends to inform how much you make in video on demand, how much you make in you know transactions in the iTunes store, rentals on Amazon, uh, for the few people who still buy DVDs. All those things, all sort of what falls under home entertainment. And what we've seen happen in the movie business over the during the pandemic, in particular, is this complete collapse of that business and so when you look at the numbers for disney you know is the 60 million 60 million on the one hand seems pretty good because it i'd assume it's way more than any other movie made in you know opening weekend rentals during the pandemic but if that's taking money out of what it would have inevitably made down the line and is that putting a dent in the total amount that the movie makes that remains a total unknown and why i think you'll also see a lot of attention. What's the drop-off weekend two at the box office? Does Disney reveal any other rental numbers, or did they just put out that $60 million? Because the fact is, is that number, because we don't have any other comparisons, it's just going to sound great, because it's a, you know, it's a big, round number.
2: Well, but also, I mean, uh, do we have any insight at all? It sounds like not. You're saying everything's opaque. In terms of the economics of this, Like it's, it's $30, which seems hugely expensive. But then if you think about, well, but that replaces, that's only sold to one household. So, like, that $30 has to replace maybe I took my wife and my two kids and we all bought tickets at a night out at the movies,
0: right? And popcorn and, but, and so on.
2: and pop, Yeah, but popcorn goes to the theaters, right? And, right? But, again, the economics would be that $30 in theory goes all to Disney. They don't have to share that with anybody, right?
1: No, they do have So this is one of the misconceptions mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. Disney does have to share it. At least, as as far as the as far as I've been told, and as far as the most of the reporting, companies like Apple and Roku and, and Amazon take a percentage because it's an in app purchase, which is usually something that they yep. they share in. Um, and so the split is better, you know, with theaters. Look, Disney wields a lot of influence, so normally in theaters you say 50-50. With Disney, it's kind of more like sixty five thirty five, where Disney keeps about sixty five percent, especially with a Marvel movie. But the number that that the big tech companies and those distributors are taking probably closer to tw- uh, twenty or twenty five percent. So Disney is keeping more, and and in that sense the economics are better. But but to your point about you know family of four goes to the movies, I would guess that out of the average the average thirty dollars that they're getting from a family that rents it is lower than they might have gotten from the number of families that went together or the gross number of tickets. So there there is a little bit of a trade off there.
0: One the so, so so some of the questions around this are about cannibalization of the market, right? And whether or not you're just, you know, Disney has access to more possible consumers who are eventually going to pay the premium for or to see this at home versus going to the theaters, especially in this kind of weird, you know, hybrid moment where the Delta variant is like surging and so on. So we don't quite know what the normal behavior is going to be about theaters. It may be that the theater going experience just isn't that good and is never going to recover post pandemic um, or and or that more people are going to be accessing these types of movies at home. so do you have a sense for whether, you know, it's going to be a hybrid sort of, I don't know, marketplace for the foreseeable future? Are these big platforms and companies still experimenting and they're not quite sure how it's going to shake out or what is the sense? I mean, because like you said... And I think parsing the numbers and why Disney would put this out there is really important because again, they're telegraphing something to the world that either is saying, yes, it's safe to go back to the movies. Look, you know, we made $60 million off of, you know, the, the theaters or the, or the hybrid release, um, or actually behavior has now changed and people are staying home and that's where we're going to make our money going forward.
1: Yeah. I think there is a desire on the part of all the big media companies to revert to, uh, an altered version of what we had pre pandemic where movies do still have an exclusive run in theaters and black Disney does, uh, later this year have big movies that will have a longer window exclusive in theaters before they're made available at home. I think the idea of this kind of premium rental and certainly the idea of releasing new movies at home sooner, that's, that's here to stay. You know, Netflix was already releasing lots of big movies at home day and date. Amazon was releasing a number of big movies at home, we can quibble over whether the types of movies that they're releasing are comparable mm-hmm. to what a Disney release is. But Netflix is starting to spend more than $100 million on movies. They've got a movie with Ryan Reynolds and The Rock and Gal Gadot coming out later this year that I think is, is their most expensive or one of their most expensive movies ever. It's the type of movie you'd see a big studio release in theaters. All the traditional movie studios and their sort of their sister streaming services... Um, are adopting different versions of sort of a hybrid model, kind of like this, where, you know, Comcast and Peacock and Viacom CBS with Paramount Pictures and Paramount Plus, there's going to be a condensed window where the movies will be in theaters first exclusively and then go on to streaming kind of anywhere from 17 to 45 days after the fact. That's where uh, Warner Brothers and HBO Max are going after this year. They sort of famously this year drop their whole schedule, uh, day and date theaters and streaming, but they're going back to having a window starting next year. And I think Disney will as well. Their plan was starting in the fall pretty much when they felt that cases would be low enough. Of course, there are variables with with the Delta variant, and if that spikes, maybe they'll adjust the release plan for a couple of their movies. But I think we're going to settle into this equilibrium where we'll have a lot of movies that are released on streaming day one, and then we'll still have certain movies that are released in theaters for anywhere from... Um, Two weeks to to six weeks, and then available at home.
2: Um, Real quick, I want to squeeze this in before you got to go. Let me pivot to Peacock, which you just mentioned, Um, because you specifically had a piece on this uh, in your newsletter this past week. Um, Peacock apparently has like 14 million monthly active users, but only about three million of those pay for that, which you know, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but that seems to be like the worst of anybody, you know, And which is not apples to oranges because, you know, HBO was already bringing in subscribers and you know, um, but um, Peacock being owned by NBC, being owned by Comcast, your piece is um, Comcast is willing to spend billions of dollars on this, but I get the sense that it's not necessarily billions of dollars on the content they're also going to try to have to spend billions of dollars to get people to sign up for this. Um, I, I guess my question, if there is one here, is or peacock, because I keep using the analogy of musical chairs, and all of a sudden I feel like they're kind of the weakest of the people looking for chairs right now.
1: They've definitely gotten off to the slowest start, if you exclude Quibi from this conversation, of the established media companies trying to make the jump from being primarily kind of... TV cable TV network owners uh, into being streaming players. Peacock has has gotten gotten off to the slowest start. You know Disney has raced out, done done gangbusters. Warner Media with HBO Max, I think, got off to kind of a rocky start, but they've settled into a groove. The past several months, they seem to be doing pretty well. Viacom CBS with Paramount Plus uh, is definitely bigger than Peacock. It's also been in the market for longer. I'd say those two are two of the ones where you're sort of wondering what is the long-term plan? How are you going to make it so that most people feel they have to pay? You know, you know why people are going to pay for Netflix. It's it's sort of utility at this point. Disney is going to get anyone who cares about Marvel or Star Wars. That's a whole lot of people. They're going to get any parent. That's a whole lot of people. They're, they won't get everyone, but they'll get most of them. Um, HBO Max is still probably got the best original programming lineup, at least in terms of dramas and comedies. And so I'm not sure what the angle that Peacock... And Paramount Plus plan on taking. I think both of them have invested a lot in sports and are hoping that that will be a big driver. You know, Both of them have NFL games for those people who don't pay for cable. Uh, Peacock has the English Premier League, which is a big deal for soccer. They have World Wrestling Entertainment, big deal for, for those fans, but those are pretty niche fan bases. Uh, similarly, Paramount Plus has some soccer rights, they have some college football, um, things like that, but they're definitely searching for what their hole is um, and what the lane is. I think the musical chair, the musical chairs uh, analogy or metaphor does work in the sense that there are pr- most people think they're kind of four or five chairs, at least for the big mass market services, and, and three or four of them are taking, taken already, and so everyone's kind of scrambling for that last one.
2: You're you're placing more chairs on the floor than even I would. But uh, <laughs> who, who did who did a uh, Discovery Plus? They're combining with Warner, right? Yeah. So
1: Discovery Plus is I, I omitted because they're really more of a niche service. It's right. Like if you love unscripted, you go there. But Discovery. So yeah. Sorry. Good.
2: But but oh, I'm I'm asking that for a specific question. So they're. They're merging with who, and it's becoming what it—what's what's it called now? So D- Discovery is buying or merging with—because
1: Discovery is so much smaller—Warner Media. They're basically taking Warner Media away from AT&T, and right. they're going to merge it into something that's, that's, that I— yeah. That's
2: HBO. So, okay, this is the question that I wanted to ask people a couple times now. Like, I feel like Discovery Plus came out of nowhere and got more subscribers, clearly, than even Peacock, but surprised people the number of subscribers— and so my question that I wanted to ask is, a lot of people keep going with this HBO analogy, which is, you know, HBO for years had success because it's like, oh, I got to sign up for HBO because I keep hearing about the Sopranos show or whatever. But at the same time, we've been hearing for years that what Netflix, you call Netflix a um, a commodity, not a commodity, a utility at this point, right? Because you want to just be able to turn it on and just watch something. <laughs> you know, couch potato veg out sort of thing. So maybe discovery plus kind of has the right idea because they own all the reality stuff. Right. So all of a sudden I'm thinking that maybe a combined HBO with discovery plus like that has all of the pieces because HBO, uh, has, has a back catalog and things like that. And they would have the, I just want to turn something on and turn my brain off. Right. What what do you think of that as a theory? That's
1: certainly the operating theory behind the deal. Um, if you're hbo max if you were at&t let's kind of pretend that at&t wasn't very eager to get out of that purchase for the time being and and just look at it as it is there's no reason that hbo max couldn't figure out how to do that type of programming you know netflix went from having pretty much no reality to having a lot of really popular turn my brain off reality television in like three years maybe five if you want to go back a little bit but they have a ton of it all you know the dating show the circle Too out to handle netflix sort of figured that one out there's no reason hbo max couldn't some of their early efforts i would uh, i would say have been uninspired but they have a couple shows that that I, I know people watch but i do think that that there is a logic in combining it because it would seem to give them kind of the complete package uh, in in terms of programming because warner media already has some sports rights uh they have the hbo programming they have a lot of animation because of cartoon network they have movies from warner brothers i mean the hbo max programming offering is is pretty strong if you if you go through it
2: because of the the day and date movies as well yeah. I mean, it. I think that the the smartest thing about the
1: day and date movies, there a lot of, there's been a lot of criticism as to how they handled it. They didn't kind of massage the Hollywood egos in the way that they should have, which I think is a, a fair criticism. But it was a really effective marketing tool in saying, you know, here's a new service. You want to know why you have to try to sign up for this thing? It's because we have new big movies in a way that no one else does. And once you get those people in... They can look around and see that Warner Brothers has a really deep library of good movies and TV shows. You have the HBO shows, which are still very high quality. You have some animation, and if you do the com- combination with Discovery, which which uh, you kind know, of unfortunately for them will take a while to to get through all the kind of regulatory processes, uh, you then fold in one of the strongest if not the strongest library of, of reality programming out there
2: right i mean i for sure am gonna stay subscribed for dune i'm gonna stay subscribed for the new season of succession and then if we stick around and there's all the house hunters going on in the background then I, like i just feel like that they have both sides of the coin like more pieces than uh i think uh, a lot of the other players are um anyway do, we, yeah go ahead uh, do you do you find yourself i'm wondering Based on that question,
1: do you add and drop different services based on what they have at any given moment, or do you just sign up for something and and let it ride?
2: Uh, I'm going to give you a a very non. (laughs) This isn't going to be a useful answer, but I subscribe to everything um, for my job, which you might do as well. (laughs) But but like, literally, literally, I subscribe to everything because it's just like, um, I need to, I need to do this stuff to report on it. So, um, it's all expensed.
0: That's very nice. That's very good for you. Once, once the, the free um, promos expire, I'm not sure that I'm going to keep them. And I think that this is an interesting, I guess, behavior that we'll have to watch and see how much people do drop or stay subscribed. I know that one experience I had was I was, um, on someone else's family Netflix plan. And when I was removed from that plan, I lost all my viewing like history and I had a lot, you know? And so one of the reasons to stay subscribed is to maintain your preferences, you know, with all the, you don't want to watch the same stuff over and over again. You want to know how far you are in different seasons. And so that may actually be one of the things that keeps you hooked, uh, unless there's some either export, import or whatever. So it I think a lot of people would, would probably be willing to or interested in subscribing for a certain period of time, dropping it to save some money, subscribing again. But if you lose access to your, well, your preferences, that may actually de- um, deter people from engaging in that behavior.
2: Um, I uh, this is also a tip if you want to subscribe to all the newsletters that are out there, get yourself a job where you have to report on all the news that the newsletters <laughs> cover because you can expense that too um, listen, uh, Lucas, uh, we promised to get you out of here, you've got uh, a meeting to go to, um, thank you so much, feel free to, to stay on the line, but um, we're, we're going to pivot, so uh, appreciate you uh, jumping on to talk about this yeah, thanks for having me yeah, this is great um, so this is a weird day where <laughs> An absolute ton of news yeah. that we would want to talk about, um, all dropped after I uh, recorded the show today. Um, so let's let's get to that, and let's bring Alex on stage as well. But, you know, Chris, maybe, maybe you should tee this up. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID, and another line where a machine scans your bag. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's dot com slash ride collide.com slash ride.
0: Oh my God. I, I thought today was going to be like a normal day and we were just going to like mostly talk about like the streaming wars, but no, it turns out there's a lot of stuff that happened. Um, top of the news, I suppose is that Twitter is um, retiring fleets Um, Fleets rolled out to everybody last November. Of course, Fleets is Twitter's take on stories. And, you know, stories everywhere is a hashtag that I've been using for quite some time to document the rise of this new mobile first, full screen, immersive, um, interactive format. But the fact that Twitter has decided, nope, you know, it doesn't make sense for us to keep pursuing this is very interesting um, on a number of fronts. You know, when they brought Fleets out in the beginning, their argument was that they were looking for a uh, less intense, less, I don't know the, the, this is sort of funny to say, but that the act of tweeting itself is intimidating. And so by adding ephemerality like Snapchat did many years ago, uh, to content, maybe that would actually lower the pressure of putting stuff out there in the world because the problem that Twitter has is one of content creation and engagement. And so what they're trying to design for and solve for is getting more people who have Twitter accounts to actually create content on the platform and fleets was there i guess i don't know i mean they borrowed it from from snapchat and instagram and obviously there's a, an advertising component to it but they took it from there and they're like oh this will make it easier but i, I it just didn't find its own rhythm and it find its own source and as i previously noted um and they admitted to most fleets ended up just being sort of people promoting their own tweets so it was really great real estate for people who were exploiting it, but a lot of people weren't using it for the purpose that it was supposedly intended to um, be used for. So, anyways, we've got Alex here from Alex Heath from The Verge, uh, who wrote and broke the news about this today. Um, would love to sort of you know get your perspective on this, um, you know, and hear a little bit more about what's happening there. We've got other stories going on too, but let's start there.
3: Yeah, I mean, I thought you summarized it pretty well. Um, Twitter has had this like existential problem, really, since it started, (laughs) um, where the majority of its users don't actually contribute to the network, which if you run a social network, you know that is um, a long-term problem that will lead to inevitable decay. And so Twitter hasn't grown as fast as investors would have hoped, and Fleets was probably their strongest stab at trying to lower the pressure um, around tweeting, which is... And you've seen it, you know that format that Snap invented. It's it's in every app now. It's in like LinkedIn. Yep. I'm not. Yep. I wouldn't be surprised if it's in Asana. It's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but uh, Twitter hoped that this was going to get normals, uh, and I say normals lovingly, yes, uh, lovingly. because um, you know I would love to be a normal on social media. Yeah, <laughs> um, what is that like? Getting Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, get normals to post more and as you said that didn't happen and and they're pulling the plug after eight months and on top of that they just started putting ads in fleets like a month ago Um, and uh, it was their first test of full screen kind of more immersive rich media advertising in the app um, which advertisers love and again is a format that has become super popular across social media so investors were looking at this as like, Oh, maybe this is going to be the another big ad, uh, source for them. And I'm actually, I was told that, um, actually it's just like a function of the teams not communicating. Like, um, like the business side didn't really know that this was going to get killed on the product side. And so like these big companies, uh, teams don't often communicate as smoothly as you would think that they do. Um, so that's the reason that they just put ads in it a month ago and are killing it now. Um, wow. but yeah, it's, uh, another kind of embarrassing, uh, thing for them where something, you know, but I will give them kudos for acknowledging it and trying to move on. Right. So that's, uh, at least they're doing that.
2: Yeah. I actually, because, uh, Kayvon's t- tweets about it, were are saying that it's, it, he almost was saying we're making space for, great more stuff that's coming. And my first thought on it actually was, well, wait, is this bullish for Twitter spaces and other things? Because it's like spaces had to live in that same... I think uh, Toby uh, 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 from... Uh, Shopify Leaky, even Leaky. tweeted, yeah, yeah he, he even tweeted that he's like, you know, the, the the multiple feeds didn't work for Twitter. Yeah, so I'm almost wondering if like this is, it's like, yeah, all right, we've got other things that are better that we're more bullish on, so we've just got to clear the space to make room for this other stuff.
3: Yeah, Twitter definitely all in on spaces. Uh, I've been told that it's like the top project internally. It's like where all the politics and gra- money's gravitating and head count is gravitating towards. So everybody's like jockeying for to be in on the spaces team and it's getting all the resources. So yeah, they're very all in on it. They said the spaces um, will still be at the top of the app. If you have someone you follow who's doing a space and they're also going to make that a main uh, tab, right? The spaces tab is going to, I think replace discover. It's going to be in the middle of the app once they roll that out fully. And it makes much more sense because it is more of an interest graph feature. It's one-to-many, which is Twitter you know, kind of intrinsically, whereas Fleets was supposed to be a little bit more like uh one-to-one or at least like more uh, sub-network kind of behavior and not like one-to-many thousands. So I think Spaces is a much more natural Twitter feature to begin with. I mean,
0: also just in terms of like solving the problem of a lower pressure place to create content, I mean, Obviously, spacecasts excluded, but um, spaces are meant to be ephemeral, and they go away. You know, after the room closes, and it allows people who maybe don't want to type or where English isn't their first language or whatever it is, you know, to be able to participate in a in a lower pressure context. So it's sort of ironic that they copied you know Snapchat or Instagram from a few years ago, and instead needed to copy Clubhouse from like last year. And so, uh, I mean. Maybe the fact that Twitter sort of had product market fit from the beginning with, you know, very small text message um, posts meant that they had to look elsewhere to actually get that inspiration to, you know, move beyond the text format. And they're not a great media platform. You know, Periscope was okay, but not great. Vine obviously was very popular, but also not a huge success, not well-timed for the market relative to TikTok. And now... You know the audio space is just blowing up and twitter seems like the obvious place where people have the network and they want to go to talk about what's happening right now in the moment
3: yeah i mean if i had a long-term bear thesis on twitter as a stock it would be that they continue to try to have their cake and eat it too and be this interest graph one-to-many network and also try to replicate uh more one-to-one networks and hopefully this shows that they're focusing more on the creator economy side of things where they actually do have very strong traction. And I think they could really give Patreon and all these other platforms a run for their money. Um, but if they keep trying to like but I mean, they have to fix the problem too, where most people aren't contributing to the network. And so, whether it's another monetization feature or something, I mean, that's like their long term existential problem that they've been battling for, like I said, 15 years.
2: So, I saw you said bear I, uh, the, a, a tweet. I, I'd give credit if I remembered who it was or I could find it right now. But, um, you know, someone was saying that maybe they're clearing the decks because it seems like with all of these. new products like newsletters and ticketing and things like, like they're trying to move the quickest of just about anybody right now to being that sort of, um, uh, Asian style super app where it's for lots of different things. Um, What do you feel about this strategy? It feels like that they're announcing new things and trying new things every other week at this point, which as we've commented many times, like, you know, six months ago, if you told me that I'd be like, yeah, that's not Twitter. Twitter doesn't do all the things they're doing all the things now. Um, What do you feel about their strategy right now of moving towards this? Let's try all of these micro things and all of these creator focused things.
3: I think when one of the most cutthroat takeover hedge funds in the industry (laughs) comes for your throat, uh, you're going to act differently. You're going to wake up. Uh, Yeah, when you have like a gun to your head, uh, you know, it's going to change how you act. I mean, I'm being a little like over the top there, but you could chart the velocity and like the features that are coming out directly to uh what happened with elliot coming in and like threatening to kick jack out and uh redoing the board and uh so yeah twitter's like it's been shaken i think and like the stock's doing well because of covid and everything else and like they do have good momentum but they keep missing uh you know, relatively consistently on targets. Um, and so they've been a little more out there on targets they want ahead And so I guess it's like kind of, let's see if this pays off in the next couple of years and fleets not working is like not, indication if I were them I would want to be like touting spaces usage numbers like very soon uh, maybe they'll do that on earnings in a couple weeks but I would want to be like telegraphing to the street that spaces is working because if spaces isn't working you've got two of their big bets that are flopping which is which is not good
2: let me, let me use this to sort of seg into the other big news that broke after I <laughs> recorded today um, because you know it's Twitter is one of everybody that is, you know, trying to embrace this creator economy stuff. Um, and the the other news that just broke was um, Facebook saying that it's going to pay a billion dollars to creators uh, by the end of next year, like literally doing bonuses if you hit milestones and things like this. Um, to what degree is this everybody embracing the creator economy? To what degree are people just... Messing their pants because they're so terrified of what TikTok is doing. Um, what do you think of of the idea that everybody is throwing money at creators right now? Everybody needs to own this, including Twitter, with things like um, you know ticketed spaces and, and newsletters and stuff. Uh,
3: these these funds, these creator funds, are ninety nine percent of the time completely p- like PR. Um, and like this Facebook thing, for example like the one billion number, that's like the magic number you pull out of your hat when you want to like announce something positive, like Google's gonna contribute to fight homelessness in the Bay Area, they're gonna commit a billion dollars. It's like, you see this time and time again, like it's just this like round, nice, clean, big number, but it's like over a year and a half period and there's no other details about how it's gonna be distributed. So um, the only creator fund or like creator payout system that I've seen, actually work was how snap approached spotlight where they, I did this kind of, you know, they would actually just reward whoever had the best videos of the day and just send them money. And it was like, based on an algorithm, they didn't really explain, but like people got paid millions and millions of dollars to the point where it like drug down snaps, like <laughs> um, EBITDA, uh, because they were paying out so much to this program. And like when a company just says, we're going to have a billion dollar fund and like, that's the headline. You really have no idea of, how that's going to work or how it's going to be distributed. So I don't put much into that. I think Facebook feels like it's very behind in the creator economy, which it is. And like you could argue that Instagram had the biggest opportunity to just own this space. And they didn't because Facebook is an ad based model. And so I think they're finally realizing they have to like wake up to future revenue models on the internet which is like direct monetization and mark is wanting to do that and so he's very out there about it and it's more just like positioning themselves as a thought leader on this because they haven't been and um the badges stuff and all that stuff they talked about today that's all been out there it's really like they wanted to put a billion number on it and make it look big but i think these funds are rpr are mostly
0: so, so one of the questions that I have about this, because I'm actually in the Instagram badges program and I made my first hundred bucks like last week or whatever, go by going live live. And I'm doing it largely to experiment and to explore, you know, like as Brian and I have talked about on the show, um, I'm just trying to see what the new norms and ideas in terms of, you know, the audience, you know, is thinking about this and to what degree people are comfortable either, you know, with tipping or participating in this different way. And, I think there's another piece of this, which is that with the ad tracking transparency stuff that Apple introduced, you know, causing ad rates to really go down and is you know really harming Facebook's value add in terms of being able to target content to different people. What we're using now or seeing instead is that creators become surrogates for, um, I guess, ad based cohorts. Right. In other words, based on the things that I'm interested in, you know, if if advertisers or brands want to work with me to reach my audience, they can do that as opposed to trying to go to go through, I don't know, like uh, privacy stealing, um, you know, Facebook tools or whatever. So I guess what I want to know or, or understand from your perspective is to what degree do people on the other end of this who are not the creators think about this model and, is it necessary to spend a billion dollars on each platform to retrain the user base to become comfortable with and familiar with tipping and direct monetization relative to ads? Because clearly the advertising model like that day seems to be, I wouldn't say like sunsetting completely, but clearly, as you said, there are future web monetization models that are coming. And the question is, how fast are we going to get there and how much, I guess, to the current you know, web and app using uh, public need to be trained in those new models.
3: I'm not sure if it's a thing of like people needing to be trained. I think like mm. you could look at OnlyFans, or yeah. I think people are willing to pay for things and it's easier than ever to pay for things online, but Apple pay and like all these, you know, easy ways to send payments. And so I think it's just like not, uh, the fact that the internet has matured to where all these models are very easy to do. And mm. you have like companies like Stripe and Shopify and that are doing the plumbing And so this didn't exist like five years ago, really. Definitely not to the degree it does now. So, um, you want a company the size of Facebook gets into it? It's just because the industry is matured enough to where it makes sense for them to do it. So, I'm not sure you need to train people. I think Hmm. the billion dollar fund is actually just to like tell creators, hey, like we're serious. Please don't go post or do Twitter super follows. Like, you know, (laughs) we have this we have this billion dollar pot of money over here, and like you may get some of it. Like, you know, if you can. find our partnerships person, the right one, like, good luck. Um, like it's more just to signal like, Hey, we are in this. And, you know, I know for a fact that like Facebook executives, the creator economy like buzz language did not exist inside Facebook until like all the media started writing about it in the last like year. Like it's really, it's really a reaction to like the media and how everyone's talking about this in the industry. So, um, I think it's more just it's actually to get the uh, supply side engaged, not the demand side. I think the demand side already wants to like pay people for stuff like have you guys ever noticed like there's already people taking their Instagram page, making it private and then sending you to their website to pay them to then get access to it. So basically like OnlyFans like I've already come across this like three times randomly, that's going to be powerful. Like people already want this stuff as my point. So I just, I, I think they're more just realizing they got to like do what people want or they're going to go elsewhere, which is like the, you know, also, um, you know, this is another topic, but like Facebook is a monopoly, like, okay, they're, they're not behaving like one in this case, but that's, that's another topic.
0: So the thing that, and I just started reading, um, or listening to the ugly truth, which is the new Facebook book. And it just like, it feels to me that this is a new, competitive. And, and by this, I mean, like, I don't know, gladiator blood sport um, in the, I don't know, the social technology world. And the thing that I think Facebook is most motivated by is, by, is not losing so you can throw all the regulations and all that stuff at them but I don't really think they care because they have such a global footprint but irrelevance that is far more concerning I think to Zuckerberg and not surfing the behavior of the next generation and building products for that generation and what I wonder is you know introducing you know money into this you know for the creator economy may not be something that that is native you know to I don't know his his sensibilities you know when he started the facebook back in 2004 he was like watching people wanting to like i don't know it's like dogs sniffing each other's butts like he was sort of building products for that you know where the humans are the dogs and now this direct monetization thing is coming out of like discord it's coming out of asia it's coming out of a, a bunch of other spots um where and i don't know like as the you know, sort of executive the CEO. I wonder if he's too disconnected from the generation that's coming up using these, these tools and platforms today.
3: Um, I, th- that's probably, there's an element of truth there, I'm sure. Um, but I actually think it's the business side of Facebook that will be the hardest to turn here just cause mm. it's so massive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like the Cheryl side of the house, um, mm. the product side and Mark is very willing to adapt and change course. We've seen this time and time True. again with stories and everything else. Um, Uh, Mark doesn't really like advertising. Like (laughs) he would rather be doing just like product stuff direct. I think this is more like in line with his vision of like people directly, uh, supporting each other. Um, but yeah, it's like, can you do both? I, I don't, we haven't seen that from a big internet company where they've effectively done, advertising and direct payments at scale in a way that makes sense. I mean, they could be mutually reinforcing things though, because yeah. like you had said earlier, you get a lot of like targeting data and uh, cohort data and, you know, with shopping attribution data layered in. And so, you know, it, it could all could be a nice flywheel for them, but it's a lot of spinning plates in the company Facebook size it's very hard to execute on all that at once in a way that makes sense.
2: Hey, Alex, one more thing, and then um we should let you go too. It's it is the middle of the workday. Um to how I, I'm not I, I don't mean this as crassly as it's gonna come out, but how scared of they uh, Facebook, how scared of TikTok are they right now? Not scared like, oh, that's gonna ruin us, but like how much is this getting their competitive juices going right
3: now? I think the I hear this all the time. Like people ask me Facebook, TikTok, like Everyone should be thinking about the fact that Google is the one who is freaked out about TikTok. Yeah, I was like, gonna ask about that. Google and YouTube are like TikTok is going like TikTok is YouTube if it was reinvented for mobile. So like Facebook never actually had a strong presence in that space. They've been trying for years and it hasn't worked. Like they care about it in the sense that time spent moves to one app, that is time in the day that doesn't go to Facebook. So they care about it in that way. Um but like TikTok's ad business is incredibly nascent. They're not stealing like the long tail of Facebook's like SMBs at all. So, like, that's not a threat. Um, if you're using TikTok, it's not like you're going to delete Instagram. They're not like, you know, totally competitive products that overlap, right? I mean, maybe over time, but like, no. If anything, like, we should be talking about like this is an existential threat to YouTube. Um, and, like, it's TikTok is YouTube for the mobile generation. So um, they care about it and that they need the inventory and they need the eyeballs. But I just think it's like misplaced to say TikTok is like Facebook's number one problem. I think mean, it's YouTube's number one problem.
0: Interesting. We don't really hear YouTube like. In the same breath as you know, we hear Instagram Reels and TikTok and all that competitive <laughs> well, energy. Well, they have this they like, have this why?
3: shorts thing. They have this shorts yeah, yeah. thing that I actually broke uh, the news about that they were working on it. I remember like early last year, and now yep. I think they rolled it out to everyone yep. recently. And I don't think it's. I mean, they' same like Well,
0: I mean, like, are people no, just repurposing like, their TikToks? It's, like
3: TikToks? it's like mobile full screen, you know, uh, YouTube videos that you can swipe through. Um, but you know, but it's their like,
0: legacy is horizontal it, videos, right? Yeah, like it's a yeah, whole, what I think yeah. is
3: interesting is specifically with YouTube.
4: And I, I think it was Colin. This, T- this is Remy, by
0: the way. And remember, these. a oh, reminder, yeah. this is being recorded and we're going to publish it Hi, later. Y'all. Go ahead.
4: Um, yeah, my name is Remy. I was watching a Colin T-Mere video and I think they were talking about shorts and they actually, it, I may be mistributing, but there was a discussion about how shorts, the behavior around shorts was more like the, advertisements that would pop up between TV shows rather than the actual content itself. Like the shorts were almost like
3: advertisements for the YouTube channels.
0: Yep. Yep. Exactly. I mean it's sort of like fleets and tweets, right? Like Yeah. It's the it's the yeah. wrong motivation.
3: So like in a pre antitrust uh, big tech is bad America, what would have happened, it would have been it would have happened like clockwork is Google would have bought TikTok before it got big. Yep. They would have kept it separate. And it, and it would have worked, and it would have been the future of YouTube. And now it's kind of like, well, um, can they really retrain the user base like to do this? People already think of TikTok for this. Creators don't go to YouTube for this. Uh, I haven't seen many successful pivots like that. I think that. creators make um, too
0: much money with the existing solutions that YouTube has, right? So yeah, they to...
3: I mean, they'll throw billions of dollars into getting people to try to do shorts because it's the format that yeah, works better, of course, right? From yeah. but like, right? And so, like, it's a matter of whether they can successfully do that, and whether creators want to do it, and whether people think of going to YouTube in the same way they think of going to TikTok. And so, I don't. I don't know. Like, honestly, like the thing that is going to make these big companies compete the most is just how chilling they they everyone is about like antitrust and like doing deals like they can't buy anything so they have to actually <laughs> they have to actually invent things uh, or copy things effectively and that's going to be that could be like their long term you know demise is like google facebook they can't buy the next tiktok
2: Or the opposite way to look at it is all of a sudden the uh, competitive marketplace is freed up from uh, being kneecapped, as I always say, but...
3: you oh know, absolutely i mean i think things... that's the same thing yeah totally like that's like it's the best use it's the best thing for snap for discord for twitter for patreon like and facebook can't just like write you a check for 3x what you raise. Oh, God! Last, you know
2: this <laughs> discord is literally the perfect example right now i know microsoft uh you know kicked the tires on that but like discord would have been bought twelve months, eighteen months ago. Um, and and now it's almost it's it's funny when it's funny to use this term. they're forced to have to find their own path. You know what I mean like and mm. and I feel like it, there's there's certain ways that that's uh, more positive and these things go in cycles and things like that. but um, yeah, it'll be interesting that a company like Discord is going to have to go it alone and find its own way, which it wouldn't under other circumstances.
3: And this conversation just reinforces kind of what I hinted at earlier, that I have yet to see a compelling argument for why Facebook is a monopoly. And I know that's probably yep. not going to go over well about with people in this room uh, or who are on Twitter generally. But uh, there is no argument I've seen on the consumer side for Facebook being a monopoly. There is a, potentially an argument on the advertising side, but again, they're a duopoly. They probably don't have a GP percent market share in any country they operate in, in terms of advertising revenue. So uh, that's going to be an interesting case. Yeah. You know, yeah.
0: Like, one thing that might be useful here, because I I actually totally agree with you, um, is really about and anti-competitive isn't even like the right framing. It's sort of more like everyone's a discount and Facebook and whoever else sort of is in those powerful positions set prices and I, I, they can like raise prices as much as they want because they have such a captive audience and no one else has that audience. So, but there are many audiences now, you know, whether it is TikTok, whether it is Twitter, whether, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Discord, there are many of these that are all offering social capabilities on the internet. And you can go around and you can choose where you want to, you know, place your ads. Um, I guess like the remedies or, or the things that have been proposed, even with the legislation, whether it's interop or whether it's breaking them up or spinning off different companies, I don't know that it's going to cause the same or, or the outcomes that people think it's going to cause. So
3: no, it's it's trying to fix uh, a feeling of like badness, yeah, like things right. are bad, with like a blunt Bags, instrument. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and it's just vague. And I have yeah, I just have to. I've yet to see a clear argument. Ben Thompson has written a lot about this in a a way that makes a lot of sense to me. I just like this is. These are very fluid networks that can easily be disrupted on the user side. um, Maybe not on the advertising side. I mean, we saw this with Apple and the ad changes. Facebook's rates for ads like shot through the roof. And that's with worse data, and that's just because like they are the place you have to go to advertise, and so they can just like raise their rates, even when like their product gets worse, which is <laughs> uh, that is a good sign that you may have monopolistic power in an industry um, but, mm-hmm. uh, but it, in terms of like you, the user side, I haven't seen it.
0: yeah I, I would agree with that. Brian, where would you go?
2: Right now, Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Oh yeah. sorry, um, Alex. Again, I'm gonna let I'm gonna offer you the opportunity to bow out gracefully. Right now, uh, <laughs> okay. we're, we're probably gonna go another ten or fifteen minutes, which you can stick around what you, for. What me. are
3: you guys talking about next?
2: You know what? Here's I'm gonna. This is a little. Left field because I know this is sensitive to Chris, but I I talked about that idea of the Twitter verification thing real quick. Okay. Yeah. And Chris, you heard me say that, like, you know, I looked oh, into right. it because yes. I'm, I'm not it wasn't worth it, yet. and there
0: were bots that got verified. There was four of them or something. There, yep.
2: there was bots that got verified, but th- my main question is because I said I was like all of the things that I had to do, and, Are you and calling me a been bot. Some...
0: Is that really what you're saying?
2: No, no, oh, okay. I'm saying. I'm saying this is sensitive to you because I know people come at you all the time to like get verified or to get your username or, or these things like that. Yeah. Um, the the hoops that I had to jump through, like it's literally if you're a journalist or or whatever, like oh things with bylines and things like that. Um, and then I see all these people that I know and trust and follow that don't get approved. Like, is it worth jumping through these hoops? Do I get anything? This is this is just a question that maybe people have had for years about Twitter. If I got a blue check what does that mean do I get more followers does
3: what happens
0: you know, it's a good question, and I was verified you know, like many years ago, um, and it was not through the same process that, that you went through. Um, I do think that they're trying to make it—I don't know—somewhat more fair. Somewhat, I mean, honestly, it's like a row in a database or, or like a, a column, and it's like turned on or off. And it really, on the one hand, isn't that meaningful, and yet it feels like you've been, you know, anointed by the platform as being, you know, a real boy. It's sort of like being Pinocchio most of your life, and then something's right, like right, but
2: it's—it's oh. it's, what you're saying is—is is it's not you automatically get put into the suggested follow thing or anything like that.
0: There's nothing like that. However, I think from a search perspective and from an interaction perspective and you know, the purpose of the feature was to disambiguate between, um, you know, fake accounts or parody accounts and the real person. Right. And so, the reason why you'd want to get verified if if there are multiples of you. Now, thank God the other Christmasina hashtag other Christmasina has not joined social media. And so I get all of his mentions whenever he shows up in a movie or whatever, but like if he were to join, there would be a real, you know, kind of fight probably between us because I mean, I'm notorious, but he's actually notorious, you know, in like a movie kind of sense. And so I'm not sure who would win in terms of being more verifiable. I'm a little bit verifiable, I suppose, but regardless I think it's just from a search perspective, you know, either helps amplify the signal that yes, this is who you think it is, or it's not. Um, I, I do think that actually a better solution, which I hope is where they're going with this, is to add more credentials or to say, you know, yes, this person actually does work for the Washington Post or works for the Verge or whatever. That would be interesting, but I haven't seen too much of that. Although, actually, I will say that um, I discovered something, and there's been a little bit of buzz about it, where Twitter is working on um, Twitter for professionals. And so you'll be able to set your account as either a a creator or a professional and then identify and associate yourself with different um, credentials in that sense. So what
3: if you're a professional
4: creator? You do that. <laughs> um, Are we talking about like a LinkedIn type history thing or is this more I, like the Instagram type of change your account and how you see it?
0: More like that, I think. I think that's actually a good um, anchor. And for those who don't know, Instagram allows you to choose to be a professional and then to have sort of a, you know, to choose what page type you have. Instagram, I'm sorry, Twitter only, of course, has one sort of account type, but increasingly they will have several other types, including whether you're a bot or automated account versus, you know, like a weather bot or whatever, or if you are a professional or a state actor. They started doing this last year where they they were identifying people who were government representatives or representatives of the CDC, So you can imagine that infrastructure allows them to create all all sorts of different um, demarcations to say, this account is of this type. And so rolling that out makes sense. The problem is how do you do that at scale? How do you actually evaluate who someone says they are, and how long does that credential last? If someone leaves a job or they transition, are they still identified as being, you know, a state actor or whatever? And well, we can
3: see like Twitter shut down the verification process pretty shortly after they reopened it for yeah. that very reason. Like, it's impossible, and so it's like what you're saying is exactly what i think they want it to be which is verification is just a means of vi- verifying that you are who you say you are because twitter has such a bot problem and an imposter problem and coordinated like uh yep. you know uh astroturf problem and so like yeah, that's that should be what it is. Is like if you're verified, not only do we know it's you, but you get privileges in the network that non-verified accounts don't. Like you get maybe you can contribute to Birdwatch, which is their yep. version right, of like right. Wikipedia for like you know fact-checking things. Like you know, there's all kinds of ways you could just like segment the audience that way, and you could actually have a healthier network if everyone is verified. Uh, but no, no platform has done this well.
2: You know, um, I nothing- see. I see. I see Jane in the room, um, and uh, so maybe she has thoughts on this. But uh, it, it, she may, makes me think of the fact that we're we're earlier than we usually are by about six hours. So if people that are hmm. in Europe or Asia that have never been able to participate, if if you want to ask a question about anything, please uh, raise your hand, and, and Chris will bring you up. But um, um, the let me let me just ask this: Wasn't the point of the new verification program that it was? Didn't they tout that? these are human beings that are going to be making these calls, which is why it's confusing that all those bots got verified. Yes. I yeah.
0: would love to know <laughs> the backstory behind that, right? Because basically you had four different accounts, all with the same followers. They hadn't tweeted once, and yet they got approved. Now I will say, actually, there was... Oh, who did I... I heard someone, maybe uh, Brian, it was you talking about this, where previously Instagram actually had a number of inside jobs, you know, where people would go in and, um, you know, they worked yeah, for the company. Yeah, it was...
2: It was Alex Stamos that said that, which he was in the room earlier, but ah. I, don't, I don't see him now. But anyway, yeah, he said that that happened at Instagram a couple of years ago.
0: Well, it happened to me, you know, where my account on Instagram actually got hacked because um, actually this was someone who worked at AT&T. They um, gave away my SIM, which gave access to my phone number, which allowed someone else who bought my SIM to reset my two-factor authentication and then to take over my account. So this is why I don't use... Oh. Uh, phone number SMS verification anymore. But regardless, if that was something that happened here, you can imagine that those accounts actually could be, you know, sold on the black market or whatever with those blue checks, which provides some kind of, again, validation that they're legit. Now, I don't know what's going to happen in terms of protecting accounts going forward, because like you said, if you are identified and, you know, given special privileges or access what happens if that account gets recycled or hacked or whatever? So, there are a lot of layers to this that I, I don't know if the internet is quite ready for where it'll go, but it seems inevitable. Okay, well, I brought up some folks actually. Um, Nima, um, who also, like Jane, loves to dig into apps and reverse engineer them, um, I think might have something to say about verification.
5: Is it right? Hello, guys. Can you hear me? Yep. And, and good night here, here is, it is night and maybe good evening or good afternoon there.
0: <laughs> so you're in <laughs> Iran, yes?
5: Yeah. Okay, so uh, what, what, what have you uh, seen so far in terms of the verification stuff? Uh, as you said, uh, verification uh, in the Twitter database is not really uh, something very uh, interesting. That's only a column, and I, uh, as I reverse uh, engineered that uh, column 2, uh, only on my client, and uh, it was a boolean variable uh, that it was true or false, uh, and then you uh, change it, for example, to true. Uh, the Twitter uh, shows a verification badge uh, on your uh, Twitter account. And I also noticed uh, there is something, a, a new feature that I uh, didn't tweet. And I uh, saw that uh, saw that uh, today, and uh, something about a boutique for education. I don't know what is that or uh, boutique. Yes, uh, blue checkmark for education. Oh, blue check. uh, education. The checkmark. The checkmark. <laughs> Got it,
0: for yeah. it. Oh, interesting. Huh. Uh,
5: yeah, I don't know uh, what was the purpose of that uh, because uh, there wasn't uh, something uh, about that or uh, there wasn't uh, many uh, code about that. But I uh, only saw that uh, there is two lines of code about uh, something uh, like a uh, um, blue checkmark or education. And uh, I think there's going to be a, a new feature but I'm not sure about it. I'm only guessing. Wow. Interesting. Uh,
0: By the way, just for context, for folks who are not following Nima, um, he, uh, I don't know when you and I started talking, but um, some of us have, let's say uh, a hobby of, of trying to sleuth into what's happening next. And um, Nima has been actually, what was the thing that you just um, discovered the other day um, that was, that was new and interesting. Was it the Twitter professionals thing?
5: Uh, no, in fact, I didn't uh, re-engineer the uh, Twitter professionals, but I uh, reverse engineered uh, the newsletter. Ah, uh, uh, the newsletters on
0: the profile. That's right.
5: Yep. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And uh, it was re- really, uh, in fact, popular too. And one of the best things that I ever uh, had uh, was when I uh, looked at the newspaper uh, of our country and I saw my name is on the newspaper. <laughs> what? And, That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Uh, that was really, 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 um, that was great... I know a you've been working for that platform.
0: kind of validation. And even though, you know, I mean, so with all this sleuthing, can you verify yourself or it doesn't work that way?
5: Uh, I tried to reverse engineer the verification form too. Uh, in fact, I did. And uh, in fact, uh, there was uh, a request verification button for me because, uh, wow. you know, uh, I don't know uh, how uh, Twitter is uh, letting people to request for verification because one of my friends uh, has a, uh, in fact, somehow. A, oh, sorry for that sound. I think so. Out of our house was trying to drive, and yeah, uh, I noticed some of my friends uh, has a page, and uh, he is uh, somehow fake on Twitter because he doesn't have a, a Twitter profile. He has uh, less than five followers, and he has twenty tweets, I think. Uh, but he could see the request verification button, and now I have uh, about uh, somehow uh, four hundred followers, and I uh, don't see the request verification button yet. Hmm. But I reverse and generated that, and uh, the request verification button was also available for me when I tried to do that. But uh, you know. Um, only uh, one part of the uh, reverse engineering is my client, and I can only uh, open things on my client. And uh, as you know, uh, the other hand, uh, there's a server, there's the Twitter server, and uh, that's somehow a more secure, And, and I can't, well, well, hold on, uh, let
0: me pause you. I don't want you to like, you know, get ahead of yourself. There are some Twitter employees in the room and I don't want to get kicked off of Twitter. So, um, but nonetheless, thank you for sharing that. Um, I I want to just circle back to what Brian was asking about though, because Brian, you said that you at least attempted to go through the verification process. You're asking, is it even worthwhile? There's obviously a lot of people who want to get verified. Um, Jane can attest to that. Um, but, in terms of the actual value, I, I, I don't know. What would make it valuable for you?
2: Are, are you asking me? I am, Or yes. Nima? Oh, oh. Well, no. Actually, what it was, was it's, it's one of those many things. It, this, this is the whole reason why I never... Um, uh, what was the email thing that everybody used? Uh, probably everyone still uses. Um, remember that you pay 30 or $40 a month
0: for? Oh, Superhuman.
2: Superhuman, yeah. Uh, I never did that because it was like you have to get on a call with us for thirty minutes. <laughs> so <laughs> when I when I went through the thing where it's like you need to I collect see. four different things with your byline in them and I links see, so it's to just them, laziness. And, right? It's like, lazy. Like people and, like
0: spend their life going after Jane, and Jane is now up on stage with us trying to get verified, and you're like, oh, I couldn't be bothered. Like I probably would be legitimately verified, and I just. I don't care.
2: I maybe, but also once I saw that other people that should be legitimately verified
0: have tried a, and tried to try. Racket, that was the other thing. At least you don't have to pay I, for it, you know. I, well,
2: but I <laughs> might pay for it if, in the same way that I used to download things from Napster that took three hours, you know. But I, now I <laughs> just pay nine dollars a month for Apple Music. Um, but it, but that's the point. Is like I I'd be more motivated to do something with it if it got me something. <laughs>
0: As, well, okay, so, so Jane's up here. Jane, is. talk to us about your experience, because clearly everyone, as far as I know, given all of your protestations that say, I, I will not verify you, you know, come to you and ask for that. What What is your perspective on why people see verification as being so valuable? And what do you think about the changes that seem to be happening?
2: I think, like, like, like by, by design,
5: like, like if, 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 they, if they're able to, like to, to make um, more part of the verification process more... Uh, Self serve, um, you might like
2: like make people feel like um, that there's, there's more transparency into hmm. into how it works. But then, but then, as we can see, like there might be bias. Um, like like um, some women in tech uh, mentioned that um, as like they, uh, as like I'm quoting them that's a,
6: that's a um, that women in tech seems attempt not to be verified. And whereas, like,
5: men
2: had. Uh, oh, had shit, Jane. Yeah. <laughs> now that you say that, the, the two or three examples that I'm thinking of were all women. Hmm. And, and I'm even thinking of a very prominent employee at Apple who is very vocal on Twitter that was complaining that she wasn't verified. So, um, okay, so then maybe I'm just not going to do it uh, in solidarity.
0: Huh, to create more space. Yeah, well, that's reasonable. But I do think this like raises an interesting point, right? Which is, you know, Twitter is putting itself in the place of verifying whether it's authenticity or notability or things of that nature. And there obviously is a question and which is somewhat subjective. Um, I don't think there's an objective measure as to who deserves verification and why should they be verified if indeed this is a way for the community to, you know, anoint certain, you know, people or accounts as being significant? You know, and if this were actually if, if if Jack were here and he were talking about you know crypto and DAOs and stuff like that, you could actually have multiple people verifying each other for different reasons or purposes that are sort of self-relevant within smaller communities. And actually, that's one other thing that's coming soon. I guess there's the communities feature that Twitter will be launching. Um, I don't know when, but they're working on a kind of groups feature. Actually, oh, I wonder if that's how. Yeah, Yvon I wonder is like solve the problem. Of, what
2: if you could you could vote hmm. for it? I know that you could obviously any voting can be gamed, but like right. what if like you could like pull your followers and like they could vouch for you and things like that. I don't know. Yeah, no, yeah, totally. I, feel like, I mean, that's just yeah. the follower
4: count because like right. 0.05 being in the 0.05 percent of your geographic area, or I believe you're also your topic, if I remember correctly, um, is that's one of the criteria that serves you as notable. Right. So people vote with their follows,
0: right? Right. uh, It's a thousand
6: or something, right? Yeah. And what about the concept of super follows? Could that be a kind of a trigger to say, hey, look, this person has amassed a bunch of people that are willing to pay to get their tweets. That should be some sort of kind of validation that, you know, they are someone credible. Do we do we know if the counts of super
0: follows will be shown on your profile? Say that again. Do we know if the count of the number of people who super follow you will be shown on your profile? I need the eyeball. Uh, Can I add something?
5: Nope. Jane? Nima? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yes. In fact, Twitter is working to uh, show the number of super followers on the uh, profile as well as a badge uh, to show that the user is super following you or that's a super follower. Got it. Okay, cool. Jane, do you want
6: to add something? Yeah. Chris, I, I really uh, appreciate you not telling everybody that once you're verified, you get the black card. Um, <laughs> I
0: that on well, the rack. there's Twitter blue and there's Twitter black, and I'm not going to tell you guys about Twitter black. That was a joke. Sorry. <laughs> well,
2: but it, but it wasn't. It wasn't bad. Uh, oh, yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, he, he said it first. The black card. You know. Anyways, um, I guess like what I think is interesting about this is again where we started. Um, or at least one of the things that we started with was about the death of fleets and about Kayvon, you know, the, the head PM or the head product guy at Twitter, talking about how he's excited about new things that are coming down the pipe and that will perhaps address this problem of the high pressure of tweeting you know, to a theoretical huge room of people who are watching you into a smaller context. And if that means that Twitter communities will be coming out in the next you know, month or so, now that's actually very interesting. Um, and especially if you have Twitter spaces that are more intimate because they exist in those smaller communities or groups, um, then that becomes interesting And then the verification piece becomes a little less relevant because instead of it being one big content network with where everyone's connected to everyone else, you have smaller spaces um, where more intimate conversations can occur and there can be more direct whether it's super follows or you know I'm I'm paying to follow you and therefore there's a deeper connection and the verification thing as a universal signifier, Is no longer as useful.
6: The other interesting thing around the fleets, uh, which is kind of unfortunate, is that in uh, going back to what Brian was saying about paying to play on Instagram, I know a lot of people would pay to become a close friend of people on Instagram so that the the color of the right,
0: the green the
6: circle would be green exactly, and you would pay for that for like exclusive content. So that's so much like a missed opportunity, and maybe they'll kind of have another reiteration of that with super follows um, moving forward, just to provide you know because I, I like that fleets area personally. I use it more for Twitter Spaces than fleets, but that's another point entirely. Lots of
0: big stuff. Oh, the thing that we didn't even talk about. I'm sorry, I have to bring this up because you know for completeness, the Clubhouse back channel. Um, has I was launched. waiting for that. Yeah, which is, this is, of course, meta, since I'm having a back channel with Brian over iMessage. <laughs> um, Twitter Spaces is the flakiest social audio product that I use. And yet, because of and that we, work, you know, well, it's, I have to use it. And I don't know, I'm... I'm frustrated i just i wanted to bring up the uh clubhouse back channel which apparently has launched for the fifth time today but actually it's real if you download the update you can go into clubhouse you can see there's a little um paper airplane and if you tap on that it'll bring you into this chat experience
6: very yeah. interesting the way that they implemented that back chat because in one release it was available yep. then with things like an hour, they have another release that took it away, so it seemed like it was a back-end update. Now everybody has it through that latest version. And it's this... There's a bunch of different things that are going on with that back-channel. There are different colors, different color codes. Hmm. Uh, There is like... um, It's kind of like a little kludgy as to how it works. you think you're in a separate chat area, but it's like an individual thing. um, And you have like an... It's almost like direct messaging, the way it's sorted out, but it initially like you're chatting with the entire room, which you're not. Mm. Um, so it's, it's a little, it takes a little bit of a comprehension as to how that works. Um, and then it you get a set it up much like
4: the Twitter DMs with the the main feed and then like the Twitter, the message requests, which I, I, I did like that. that
0: Wait, say, say, say it again.
4: They have the, so when you go to the back channel on yep. Clubhouse, yep. there's the, Messages, which is like the messages that you are actively doing, like your regular Twitter DMs, but there's also the message requests tab. Mm-hmm. So there's a separate thing for when people send you an initial message that you aren't mutual follows with. I, I believe I'm don't I'm not exactly sure exactly what gets sent to the message request, but I'm assuming a the people that you don't follow or that are trying to send you a message, and possibly people that you are coming in contact with for the first time.
0: Yeah, I did notice that you can actually turn off message requests as well. So if you're not in the mood to chat or whatever, then you can actually do that pretty easily, which is cool.
4: Yeah, and I do like that they did that little thing where they added this little pullout tab. So if you're in a room, you can just tap the little tab and just slide the whole uh, DM
0: out. How, how do you guys like because you guys have spent a bunch of time both here and on clubhouse and elsewhere and i did want to bring up the change to green room and i want to posit something in just a sec but how do you think that the addition of text dms the back channel is going to change the character and the interaction experience on clubhouse
4: i think it's going to be less a change to the interaction on clubhouse and more the change to how the clubhouse people interact on other platforms
6: I don't know. When I was in the space, hmm. there was a lot of hesitation and a lot of concern about the distracted focus because a mm-hmm. lot of folks that were really adamant about not having it were like, you know, at least we focus on this conversation. So all the things that most of us like think is an asset, they thought it was a, you know, a, a lot of the things that we look at as a liability, they saw it as an asset. No distractions. Yep. You just focus yep. on the conversation. Now you have to monitor this other area as a host, and it's a good thing to have mods because we don't have co-hosting, so people could check that. Um, So, I think a lot of people were concerned about the distraction of having to take care of something else in in the process. See, Um, I very much disagree with that because
4: most of the biggest hosts were looking at DMs anyway. They were just looking at it on a different platform.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I think
4: the biggest possibility for distraction was if they made it the actual room. Like, Mm. if the people that were on the stage could just send and have this parallel oh, and going, that, like, that's how Twitch it works stream. with
0: green room right so yeah what right. have yeah. you guys seen over and on green room
4: green, green room would, i just, because, that was from my initial reaction so wholesaling and i you've probably spent more time on there than i have
6: yeah so green room is is the typical side chat mm-hmm. which is like angle Angle is like the same thing mm-hmm. um so it's, it's great because there's links, there's but there is a distraction. There is another side discussion that happens. This is a little bit different because it's private discussions versus group discussions. Um, so that's why I say it's a little bit more annoying if that host gets bombarded with a bunch of stuff. It's like, what am I going to do with this stuff? You know, I don't have, you know, it's like checking a bunch yep. of DMs, right. But in well, it's, world, it's a little
0: bit like, you know, if you've ever gone live on Instagram, or at least, you know, when I have, I end up right. with lots of randoms who right. show up on my feed, and most of them are like, yo, where are you from? Where are you from? Right. I'm like, yeah. what? Yeah,
4: <laughs> that, I get the same thing on Twitter <laughs> spaces, where people, like, I'll just be talking in Twitter spaces, and random people hop in, and it's like, hey, yo, <laughs> you can you give me Twitter spaces? I'm like, that's
0: not. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's fine. It's the internet, whatever. <laughs>
6: um, but what's what's interesting is I don't know if you've tested angle angle has a whole nother scenario where you could actually upload distinctive content specifically to the not only to the chat, but as a host, you could actually broadcast your video in the same area that we have the nest and that everybody mm. s- is the same wow. thing at the time, which I think is a very compelling kind of experience. Um, for like a brand, we're, we're like- talking about angle
0: audio here, which is another social audio app <laughs> that you can find in the app store.
6: That just,
0: just sounds like Twitch. It is a little no. like Twitch, but it's, I would say it's mobile first. Whereas Twitch, I think came out of right. desktop streaming.
6: Right.
0: Yeah. That's a big difference. Um, I, I do want to, okay. One more thing. And then I think we can wrap up. And I also think Brian is back. Fortunately, he couldn't hear us for a little while. You know, welcome to Twitter spaces, um, is about the and I know I I complained, this, uh, complained about this on Twitter, but, you know, Green Room became this place where it was just about kind of, you know, sharing or asking for diamonds or gems. That's their whole in-app currency. They're not worth anything, but they seem to, again, it's their own version of verification. And instead of one verification badge, it's like getting thousands of verification badges, I suppose. And recently, in a recent update, Green Room actually... Well, Spotify redesigned the profile to completely eliminate the count of gems, which people had been trying to build up over time. Because you create a game, people will play the game. So I guess my question is or here here here's my thought. Here's my theory. My theory is that Spotify acquired Locker Room because they wanted to acquire the talent, the platform. Actually, it's interesting. Green Room is built on Agora, which is the same tech as Clubhouse. So they were able to probably accelerate their dev cycles by six months. And now they want to wipe out the community, essentially fumigate it and start over from scratch and make it more of a entertainment and music and maybe podcast oriented space. And sports may or may not be part of that. I mean, sports is not part of, I mean, it is part of maybe podcasts on Spotify, but I don't think sports is what Spotify really cares about. So I don't know. I, for those of you who've like spent some time over there or watching these things, what do you guys think about that idea? I I think one at a time.
6: Yeah, the hustling, you go first. I think for the podcaster, it's like a godsend because mm-hmm. you have three different components that work nicely together. You could have this engagement similar to what you're doing now, record it, get the recording within 24 hours, yeah, that's true. use Anchor, do the distribution to Spotify. So it's a, this whole nicely fitting network of products that works very well together a lot of the sports folks are already broadcasters and podcasters. So that fits into their mold. Um, And then there's a whole new set of genres that are coming about, but I love the fit of all those products kind of having individuality, but they all come together like Voltron and they, (laughs) you know, um, do some things together. To Hosaline's
4: point, I think green room will be at its best. The more that it leans into connecting itself to Spotify's podcasting platform. Yep. Right. For example, Hossalian alluded to this where a lot of even the sports guys had podcasts already. One of the things that they had done were they had this little badge system where if your company or the podcast that you use has a contract with, well, previously Locker Room, but I, I'm assuming those contracts got transferred to, to Green Room. If your podcast had a contract with them, it would put the little badges kinda of like where the, the mic uh, the little mic symbol would go. So when you unmute you could see the the logo of the podcast you were associated with. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So Almost like we can see a verification badge here instead of a verification badge. It's the logo of the podcast that you're associated
0: with. Similar to what I was talking about before with, you know, verifications, if not verifications. And it's like, you know, what are you part of or where do you come from or yes. whatever. Mm-hmm.
4: And right. I think Greenroom leans more into that to yep. the ability to actually connect. So imagine if Joe Rogan could have these chats that popped up on his page. I'm just using Joe Rogan because he has a, yep. a podcast. You could say call her daddy, but just because they have a contract with Spotify yep. and go, all right, he's associated with the Joe Rogan podcast or somebody on his team, like Jamie comes up for a chat and has the Joe Rogan symbol there. And then it also is directly linked to the Spotify podcast page.
0: Yep. Yep. Totally yeah. makes sense. I mean, it's, it's going to be, what's interesting about Spotify is that they are one of the few that is willing to, or at least seems to have several apps that are all part of the same universe, and you know Facebook does too. But I, I think that Facebook, you know, to, to Brian's earlier point, ha- wanted to create like this Meta app where everything happens in the Blue F app, and you know, in some ways that makes sense because trying to get other apps to launch and gain steam or whatever is very hard. What will be interesting to see is if there is a merger that comes together between the Green Room app and the Spotify app eventually. Um, it's quite clear that Spotify cares a lot about contests and live, um, you know, shows and events and things like that, whether it becomes part of the main app, I think is one big question that we should be paying attention to. One of the things that I did notice. I tweeted about this yesterday, is that inside the Green Room app there are four different icons depending on whether you're in staging, production, or whatever. And this is you know common when you're testing out apps. But um, the icon was called Now Playing. It wasn't Locker Room. It wasn't Green Room. And so you can imagine that maybe Green Room actually you know becomes rebranded as you know Spotify Now Playing, and it's the place to go to you know hear live shows or things along those lines.
4: And they already list live shows on Spotify yep. accounts.
0: That's right. That's right. right.
4: They do it on artist accounts now, but I don't, I don't think they do it on podcast accounts, but they have that infrastructure of like how we promote totally. Live events. And now all they got to do is like add a
6: little button there that says, this is a green room, click this button and it'll to take join you green, a room. To yep, exactly. green room. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And they're doing a lot of great ad promotions. When you're on Spotify, you get ads for green room just to cross wait, wait,
0: Are all you saying people- if you're not a paying Spotify subscriber,
6: Yeah, I get
0: ads. Yeah, yeah, I'm a premium subscriber, so I don't know. That's very interesting.
6: So the other thing, too, is I want to make sure people are clear. There's also a verification on Spotify in addition to the affiliation. There's two badges that you could potentially have. One to be like SB Nation, for example, and then one's another verification piece. And they go through the same verification kind of process over there. Um, And, you know, you have to submit an application, things like that. But it was good to see... That, yes, they're a part of SB Nation or some other mm-hmm. place so that when we they do host the room, it's like, oh, yes, they're they're calling. It's almost like having a New York Times thing on your yep. on your uh, logo, yeah. which is pretty nice. Yeah, I think yeah. there's some honest, more of that. That oh. kind of verification means
4: more to, uh, to me, at least. Like, if it told me why Christmas Cena was verified rather mm-hmm. than just putting a check there, that would almost yeah, be yeah. more valuable.
0: Yep, that makes sense. Um, Randy, okay, let's open. bring Randy up here, and then we're going to close it up.
6: Yeah, I think I just wanted to 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 highlight one point because I think that's the one point, at least for me, that is the most important about Green Room. It's really the monetization piece. Because social audio, at least like for Clubhouse, it's gonna be very difficult to monetize. Even Twitter spaces, it's gonna be extremely difficult to monetize. I think Green Room has such a leverage over monetization. From a podcaster and a creator perspective, where now creators can double dip and can have a sponsor, a permanent sponsor for their podcast, and then they can have sponsors for their green rooms as well. So I think the, to me, the revolutionary um, value here is really monetization more than the social audio itself. Wow, completely okay. agree.
0: Everyone, yes, you got that. lots of hundred yeah, emojis yeah, on healthy. that one. So I think everyone agrees on that one. Um, all right. We've lost Brian again, but I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, thank you guys for joining today. Thank you to Lucas and to Alex for coming and fleshing out a bunch of our knowledge about the big stories of today. This was the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience for July 14th, 2021. Um, again, Brian and I try to do this on the weekly basis. We did it a little bit earlier today. We got a little more participation from the rest of the world, and hopefully we will see you here next week. Thanks, everybody.